support Narrative's independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative and check out our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to subscribe and download. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Narrative Live. Tonight, we're going to talk about Deutsche Bank, which, as you may know, if you watch the show a lot, we're kind of obsessed with because we think it's it's the holy grail of everything uh, Donald Trump. Uh, David Enrich is the author of Dark Towers, and he joins us today. Hello, David. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. And as usual, uh, Albizi in L.A., Eric is in St. Louis, and uh, also in New York uh, is Greg Oliar. So welcome, guys. You know, in your subtitle of your book, you call it Deutsche Bank, Donald Trump, and a Trail of Destruction. An epic trail, not an just epic any trail. trail. Sorry, I left out epic. It is epic. It's kind <laughs> of insane epic, when yeah. you think about this long journey of this bank. Tell us a little bit, if you would, about, uh, if you can, just a brief history of how this bank sort of went from, uh, from you know, started by a king, started by the king of Prussia, and then some of the highlights along the way, maybe a couple of points from uh, its history. Well, so first of all, this is Deutsche Bank's 150th birthday this year. So happy birthday, Deutsche Bank. Um, birthday. 1870, it was basically just a very provincial German bank helping German companies uh, expand internationally for its first 60 years or so until World War II and the Nazis rise to power at which point it became the bank of the Nazi party and the Nazi regime. And it helped finance World War II. It helped finance uh, the Holocaust. It helped finance Germany taking over in large chunks of Europe, which so was very bad. The bank was found to be a criminal entity after the war. Its CEO was convicted of being a war criminal. Um, and then in a pattern that has repeated itself over the years with Deutsche Bank in particular, but banks in general, the war criminal comes back, returns to grace, is once again the CEO of the bank, despite being a war criminal. So wait, they broke the whole thing up, but then they re, and then they reconstituted it with the same leadership. Well, it was slightly different leadership, but the same guy who had been uh, tried and convicted of being a war criminal did rise back to the top. And frankly, the amazing thing is he was eventually welcomed with open arms back into the Western uh, kind of community. He was a guest at Dwight Eisenhower's second inaugural. And uh, so he was really, he, he is the guy, Deutsche Bank is the bank that really helped after the war rebuild and redevelop a lot of Europe. So, and that was kind of the bank's story for the next, I guess I'm trying to do the math in my head, but roughly the next 50 years or so. And it, um, and then like, you know, this is again a story that we've heard before with different companies. It developed this taste for Wall Street and slowly but surely all hell broke loose. And so, by the modern era, it had become the kind of last step, last stop for uh, all sorts of people who had been or institutions who really couldn't be banked anywhere else. Whether it was outlaw regimes and terrorist groups or drug cartels or uh, people, whether it's Our Jeffrey <laughs> or Donald Trump. So, and here we, which brings us to. Yeah. the present day and that's obviously eliding a lot of their 150 year history yeah but yeah well, really, you did a good job there so uh let's talk about donald trump because he has seems to have a magical uh, ability to get loans from these guys as much as two billion dollars worth of loans you said uh it's in, in two decades of, of working with them that's a pretty impressive amount yeah it's not bad um how, how did that happen how does he get that extra that good credit rating with them well, I, I think to answer that question, you need to look at why he was off limits to everyone else. And the answer to that is that he was he and his businesses were repeatedly defaulting on loans and or declaring bankruptcy, and which obviously does not generally endear one to the banking community. And so he was through the mid to late 90s was really off limits because of his, his kind of final straw of defaults. And at that moment in the late 90s, Deutsche Bank was really making its big push onto Wall Street and into the US. And one of the markets that they really wanted to get big in was the commercial real estate business in the US. And so they were going around talking to big real estate developers, most of whom already had established relationships with reputable banks and had never even heard of Deutsche Bank or had never 
that's a slight exaggeration, but didn't really know Deutsche Bank and why would they do business with them? And so Donald Trump comes along who maybe, I don't know if you'd ever heard of Deutsche Bank, but he certainly was eager to hear what they had to say because he needed a bank and Deutsche Bank needed customers. And so it was kind of a match made in heaven. And over the ensuing 20 years, the bank doled out in, in the neighborhood of $2 billion in loans. And the miraculous thing about that is not so much that they gave him that much money, it's that they gave him that much money despite the fact that over and over again, he either defaulted on loans or defaulted on uh, debt issuances that Deutsche Bank had done. So this is not someone who came to Deutsche Bank and kind of turned over a new leaf and was all of a sudden a good customer. This is, he was a very bad customer, and yet the bank repeatedly decided to get back in bed with him because they thought that they could make money off of him. Now, LB has a particularly uh, piece of history here, at least knowledge about uh, his relationship with Ace Greenberg. Um, and maybe you should uh, fill in some of that as we talk about some of the, the, the pre-story to him arriving at Deutsche Bank, uh, LB, and any other questions you have uh, for David? Been, Ace Greenberg was ahead of Bear Stearns. Um, we've talked about him quite a bit on Narrative before. And, uh, and it's very odd for the head of Bear Stearns to also be someone's sort of private wealth manager. Um, but he was for Donald Trump. Uh, he, was a, he was always available to him and helping him. This was also during the years just after the years that uh, Jeffrey Epstein had been under ACE's tutelage and then got sort of ejected out of uh, out of Bear Stearns, but was still working with all of the executives in his offshore stuff. And so around that, when Donald tr started to trying to do Atlantic City, and he was really set on Atlantic City, it was ACE and Bear Stearns who came up with ways to do creative bonds to where Donald wouldn't really own the bonds, but they were in his name. He could exercise them, but he wasn't responsible for them. If anything defaulted, it was still sort of Bear Stearns, but he had the right to use them to go out and try to leverage even more money. Um, and so Ace did these extraordinary things and took extraordinary risks to be there for Donald, helping him prop up what would be his sort of Atlantic City endeavors, his casino endeavors, which eventually are what Donald pulled Deutsche Bank into as well. Yeah. So that, I'm, that's, that's a really good encapsulation of it. That's uh, frankly a better encapsulation of the Greenberg Trump history than I've previously heard. So that's perfect. Yeah. That's, a little, that's my era. I mean, and that meshes perfectly with what may be my favorite anecdote that I've ever encountered about Donald Trump. Oh, it's uh, so and, good in your book. Yes. Yeah, tell it, us. It, it's really it's delicious. Such a movie um, scene, yeah. And so it, the story goes, and look, I've heard this from someone who has direct knowledge of it. So the sourcing on this is very strong. Uh, it, so the story goes that Ace Greenberg is obviously Trump's banker and it, Trump is basically in need of money. I'm not actually sure if it's for Atlantic City or for something else, but in any case, he was looking for something yes. in the vicinity of 100 to $150 million. And he goes to one of the investment bankers at Bear Stearns who, uh, you know, takes Trump's phone call, not really taking it that seriously, but he hears him out. It's not a bad proposal that Trump is making, but at this point, uh, the Trump-Bear Stearns relationship is kind of soured because Trump has done, had one of his defaults on his Atlantic City debt. And so the banker hears Trump out and then, you know, they hang up the phone and he decides, listen, Trump will get the message that we're not interested if I just ignore him for a few weeks. And he maybe he'll just go away and get the message. So Trump starts calling back. He never goes out. away. He never goes away. <laughs> I hope yeah. it goes away. I hope sometimes, I hope by November 4th he's, he's gone S away. He's like an STD. Yeah. Oh. Uh, well, get rid of it. You've got to kind of, uh, I mean, I kind of respect his persistence. He's like, for me as a journalist, Persistence is the name of the game. And so you try over and over again. And so that's what Trump does with this Bear Stearns banker. And the guy, the banker just, just doesn't, he just ignores him and tries to make it go away. And it just so happens that then Trump goes and has breakfast with Ace Greenberg one day. And he says, listen, Ace, your banker is ignoring my phone calls. What's up with that? And Ace is like, I don't know. It's the first I've heard of it. And he goes, he returns from breakfast, goes into the office, calls his banker into his office and says, what is going on? I just had uh, breakfast with Trump. And he says, you're ignoring his phone calls. And the banker says, yeah, I'm ignoring his phone calls. And we can make this go away if you want me to. It just means we're going to have, going to, have to lend Trump $100 million. And Ace laughs and says, like, no, why are we doing that? It's McDonald's. No, thank you. 
But it gets so much better because he then <laughs> Ace says, No, obviously we're not doing that, but you need to resolve the situation and we can't have I don't want Donald calling me over and over again. So you need to go figure out a way to make this go away. And so the banker like sits around and thinks about it for a while. And I've got to say, I'm not one who is like really that in awe of investment bankers in general, but hearing this story made me appreciate their worth because so he, the banker sits around for a while, himself, what am I going to do? Finally, he comes up with a plan. So he calls Trump back and he says, listen, Donald, I'm really sorry. I know you think I've been dodging your calls and you know what? You're right. I have been. And the reason I've been dodging your calls, it's really rude of me, but it's because we can't lend you the money. And Trump says, what do you mean you can't lend me the money? I just had breakfast with Ace Greenberg this morning, and we're, we're buddies. Of course you can lend me the money. And he says, no, we, I, we can't lend you the money, and here's why. Ace doesn't want us to. And, and so the punchline of this is Trump says, I just had breakfast with him. You, he is my friend. We can definitely do business together. And he says, listen, huh. Ace told me the following. There are four people in the world who we at Bear Stearns do not want to be on the other side of because it's just too scary to be up against such financial geniuses. Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, George Soros, and Donald Trump. Uh. And Trump That is a very good pressure. That is very good. The hundred million dollar compliment. The hundred million dollar compliment. Exactly. Brilliant. Oh my gosh. And that's the way to, to deal with Trump, apparently. We figured out over the last few years. But there is this thing called Donald Risk, which you talk about in your in your book. And you know, this is that they didn't no one really wanted to loan Donald Trump any money because he'd lost so much of it. And then he wouldn't pay it back. Seven hundred million dollars um with the uh, Taj Mahal and that and that group of casinos. But then in two thousand and one, the the bank did have a sort of a sudden, uh, you know, springing up of conscience, and decided not to allow him this five hundred million, half a billion line of credit that they were had applied for, that he had applied for. They denied that because they they thought, well, yeah, they had a bad experience with with Merrill Lynch and Taj Mahal. Then in two thousand and three, two years later, they're back to doing business with him. Now they're selling stocks for the Trump resorts. The year after that, in two thousand and four, they're funding the purchase of that uh, Palm Beach house that he. We think laundered money for Rybolovlev, um, the Maison L'Amitié, and then in 2005 there is a probe done of all their money laundering efforts, I guess, and and there was some concern done uh, raised by the Feds for what they were up to, and they were let off for some reason. And I'm wondering yeah. if there's any connection between all those things, whether you know, as we look at at why they kept allowing him to loan all this money, and whether the knowledge of the money laundering. Maybe it was one of the reasons that they uh, didn't uh, press further charges or look further into it in 2000 and uh, in 2005. Yeah, I mean, the short answer is I don't really know. I mean, I have a bunch of bits of information I'll share. It is worth pointing out, I don't, to my knowledge, at least Deutsche was not the one that financed that 2004 Palm Beach uh, property, um, which is obviously one of the, unless there's something that you guys know that I don't know, which is Yeah, I think it impossible. came out of the Wolf book, um, that's, that's, I, which I think was uh, ultimately sourced to, to Epstein himself, but uh, I'll, I'll look it up afterwards and share it with you. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. There's, um, but there was, this is also not mentioning another huge loan, which was the, they did the GM building for Trump around uh, 2001, 2002. They did the Chicago, his big Chicago development in 2005. And so there was a, and the first thing to know about Deutsche Bank is that it is a mess. And <laughs> the, one of the things that Trump very, I don't know if it's, he did, exploited it savvily or if this was just by accident, but he did manage to exploit the fact that different divisions of Deutsche Bank not only were not communicating properly with each other, they were also often competing against each other, which is not a healthy uh, dynamic inside a company. Uh, you do not want different parts of your organization fighting with each other to kind of one up each other. And so it, Trump managed to exploit that very effectively. And so the the unit that had it sold Trump, sold bonds on Trump's behalf uh, for some of his casino debt, they, which Trump promptly defaulted on, didn't bother to tell another division of the bank about that default. And then that division of the bank goes and lends money. And so round and round we go. But the, to me, the biggest clue on Russia with Trump in this era is that around the time, around 2004, 2005, which is right when Deutsche Bank gets busted for the first of many times by the Fed for uh, this Russian money laundering scheme through Latvia, right around that time, I've heard and I've reported this in the book, 
um, Trump was looking to build a couple, uh, or looking to partner on the development of a couple of big luxury projects, one in Baja, California, so in Mexico, the other in Waiki at Waikiki in Hawaii. And in both of those cases, he was looking, the way those, those developments get financed is you need a bunch of upfront money, obviously. And one way to do that is you sell condos or chunks of condos in advance. And so Deutsche Bank in London set up a bunch of meetings for Trump with some of Deutsche Bank's um, kind of high-end, very wealthy clients. And those, so Trump Trump and his, uh, the Trump Org executives would go to these meetings in London and mingle with the guests. And in, in some cases, sold not just one or two condos to these people, but whole blocks of condos to them. And my understanding is that among the people that were at those meetings that ended up buying big chunks of those properties in both uh, Mexico and Hawaii were a number of people, a number of very wealthy Russians with direct connections to the Kremlin. And I, unfortunately, I kind of know who they are, but not well enough that I'm actually going to say it out loud. But the, um, but that's not a, it's a common story for for Trump towers uh, around the world is that there's a lot of Russian wealthy investors. It is, but what it, what's interesting to me about this is that the timing is so directly like, linked to when we know that the, they were getting in trouble. There was a, a major money laundering scheme going on where right. Russian through Latvia. Organized yeah. crime. Well, and there was right. There's there's a lot of bad stuff going on in the Trump organization and in Deutsche Bank at the exact same time. Uh, and we and they link here in at these meetings in London, and we see Deutsche Bank specifically introducing Trump to these very wealthy Russians, who then put a bunch of money into these planned developments in Hawaii and Mexico. I want to get into the laundromat a little bit later, but this is a good time to talk as well about uh, Justin Kennedy. I think. Um, and, and Greg, you wanted to, to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, can I, <clears throat> I want to pivot and go back to something that we were discussing sure. before, just because I think it's interesting. The idea that, uh, and this is something I learned from the book that it never occurred to me, the idea that when they bought, um, when they lent the money to Trump in these vast amounts, they actually did have a, a, a business reason to do it, or at least Mike Offit's branch of Deutsche Bank did, yeah. which is that, they had to have big commercial real estate loans on hand so that they could then slice and dice them and turn them into mortgage-backed securities to sell. And there's that great quote in the book about the furniture store. Um, yeah. um, uh, can can you just explain okay. that a little bit? Because this is an important distinction because people like me who don't really know that much about banking were like, where did the money come from? How does this happen? Da, da, da. Right. And it may, it, so right. I, I think it's important to, to, to make the distinction that, that there actually yeah. was a reason. You know, and this is one of the, I think, to people who are looking at Deutsche Bank as the holy grail for all the answers about Donald Trump and Russia, that it ends up, I think, being potentially a little deflating, which is that Deutsche Bank had commercial reasons for doing a lot of this. That's not to say there weren't other reasons as well or other money coming into finances, but they did have what they thought were solid commercial reasons for most of these loans. And they turned out to be wrong about a lot of that, but they, you can at least, and I, I've talked to almost all of the people that were involved in the decision to make these loans over the years. And they all, you know, they all might be lying to me, I guess, but I, I do think that there was, there were credible commercial reasons for some of this. So, in initially, yeah. the loans in the late 90s and early 2000s through the commercial real estate business, and the hot Wall Street thing right then was the mortgage-backed securities business, especially commercial mortgage-backed securities, which means, uh, as you said, it's taking big commercial real estate loans and slicing them up and repackaging them into bonds and then selling them to investors around the world. And Mike Offit, who was the guy running that business at the time, he's a He's a protege of Steven Mnuchin's at Goldman, actually. Uh, yes, Mike, Offit, yeah, Mike Offit compared that to, and he got very, his boss got very mad at him about some of the loans he was doing, and he defended <laughs> himself saying, I feel like I'm in a furniture factory or a furniture store, and someone's complaining to me that there's too much wood. Um, and basically, that's the point. You, you need the wood, which is, are the underlying loans, in order to you know, package into furniture that you can then sell. And... So that was that was the motivation, at least initially, for doing a lot of these loans. So they needed Donald Trump's bad loans. They needed to give him a bad loan, basically. Otherwise, they would not have been well, able they, to finance all these others. They needed yeah, any and, loan. Bad right. loan, good loan. They needed great, big, huge real estate loans. Mm -hmm. And so you needed to be in business with great, big sort of development or projects, even right. if it's just someone slapping their name on it, right? There's a... Yeah. 
there's a project behind that. There's a project around that. And whether it gets to built or not, um, I mean, when can you start chopping it up? In, 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 did you find that out, David? Is it just as soon as the deal is struck, as soon as Deutsche says, okay, we'll fund this, can they start chopping it up before yeah, I mean, I think it needs to is laid? Yeah, I mean, it's not contingent on the actual uh, construction. It's contingent on the loan. And <laughs> the security is contingent on the loan. Look, this, is, this whole system is, I don't know if we can swear on this, but I, so I won't be the first person. Yes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Encourage it, actually. It, this whole system is fucked up. Like, mm. This is what caused the yeah. 2008 financial crisis, our, our <laughs> financial engineering like this. It's very rickety. And it's not built on a often not built on a sustainable model. And so one of the problems is that you've got these big construction loans, which are very risky, right? I mean, put aside the fact that Trump has a tendency to default. Building things, even in a market like New York City, is risky. Like the unions might go on strike, for example. The like the foundation might flood. Maybe the real estate market goes south before you can sell all the luxury condos. There are huge risks involved. And so, but that doesn't, the reality is these loans, the bank is going to hold on to these loans for not very long. They're going to very quickly package it, get it off its balance sheet, sell it on to investors. And the investors will either make or lose money depending on whether the borrower, in this case, Trump, continues to meet the payments of the loans. And that is contingent in turn on whether he manages to sell the units, whether it's retail or condos or whatever, right. in the actual building. And so, and look, in fairness to Deutsche Bank and Mike Offit, and even to Trump, believe it or not, the, on those first batch of commercial real estate loans that Deutsche Bank made to the Trump org in the late 90s and early 2000s, Trump did not default on those. Those turned out to be good deals for all parties. And it, I mean, Trump certainly got what he wanted. The bank and the bank's customers made money. It wasn't until a little bit later that Trump started really taking advantage and defaulting and screwing Deutsche Bank and its customers in the process. Yeah. I think I, I that that brings up like point B, which is that Deutsche Bank also needed Trump the person because yeah. people in the United States right. weren't familiar with it. They pronounced it douche bank, like the guys that work there and stuff <laughs> like that. And they, they liked having Trump's name on it and associated with it at the time because it gave them some sort of uh, way to stand out, which I thought also was interesting. Yeah, it, it was really trying to break into the mainstream back then. It wasn't just trying to do investment banking. It was doing asset management and wealth management that are much more kind of retail-y businesses where you want to have, it's essentially the biz type of businesses you would be advertising with or advertising for. So for example, they started hosting this golf tournament every uh, September, I think, up in Boston. And they would get, it was a pro-am tournament. So they would get you know, some of the best names in golf, but they would also get celebrities to come and golf alongside. And so Trump was always a big draw at that tournament. They loved having Trump there. Trump loved being there. I've heard stories about him kind of working. I don't even know what it's called in golf, but like the lines of crowds around the golf course, I guess. Sure. And like Sally. Yeah, there was this one incident at one of the tournaments where Deutsche Bank had, they were kind of doing promotional videos or filming promotional videos there with some of the golfers and celebrities. And so Trump, you know, who can't ever possibly say no to a TV camera that's rolling, sits down for to do an interview. And the Deutsche Bank person behind the camera says, so tell, tell us, Donald, why do you like doing business with Deutsche Bank? And he says something to the effect of, I love them because they're so easy. They just do what I want. And <laughs> the person who is so fast. They're so fast. Yeah, yeah. Right, they're so fast. Thank you. You've read my book more recently than I have. Uh, 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 so and fast. the person filming this is like, is that actually what we want someone to be saying? It seems like that's not a great sign of us doing due diligence. And sure enough, they really weren't doing a tremendous amount of due diligence on a lot of these loans. One they of these like days, Donald. someone's going to have to explain to me what happens on those golf courses, why these people pay $30,000 a year to be members of golf courses. What happens in those golf courses that are so special? Is it, Are deals actually made there? Or? Nobody's around. It's private. Right. It's away from the cameras. It's away from the phones. It's all the contracts. Just make deals on the greens. All right. Yeah, you're going to talk about uh, something else, Greg. Oh, yeah. We wanted to talk about um, Justin Kennedy because he's, he's kind of a, a key player in this for a lot of reasons, starting with the fact that he, he's the, the, the son of uh, the suddenly abruptly retired Supreme Court Justice, uh, the grandson of who, LB? I don't remember the first name. It's similar to one of the Kennedy family names, um, but he was the private personal attorney, singular attorney for Artie Samish, who was the, is the Roy Cohn 
for the outfit out on the West Coast. A great big, huge mobster fixer. <laughs> and, um, and when he abruptly uh, had a heart attack and he died, his young, uh, just what became Justice Kennedy, was just out of law school and he took over his father's hmm. sort of soul man practice um, and then became a judge. <laughs> <laughs> and then a Supreme Court That's judge. That's another thing. I did not know that. That's interesting. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. So anyway, so he, he's, he, even in the book, he's an interesting guy. I mean, the, 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 yeah. the word I that came to mind was swashbuckling. But what, what, you know, even right out of college, just doing all this kind of crazy stuff. So um, tell yeah. us what you know about about. Justin Kennedy and, and specifically the relationship with him and Trump. Yeah, and so Kennedy, I mean, he comes from this family of, and he, he's, his, his family, his dad by the time he is coming of age is a very prominent and fast rising judge. And they, the family has money. And so Justin's start right out of college or business school is that he starts doing a lot of commercial real estate and he would, a lot of purchases and he, he would brag to friends that he, in uh, the 80s had bought up a substantial chunk of like fairly major American cities like Colorado Springs, for example. And he, that worked well for a while. And then there was a real estate bust and he lost basically all of his money. And he decided that at that point, maybe he would get into banking. Um, and so he managed, I think mostly through family connections to land an interview at Goldman Sachs and landed on the team of Steven Mnuchin, who at the time was, uh, you know, working in the mortgage-backed securities division at Goldman. And there, uh, Kennedy met uh, Mike Offit, and the two of them went from Goldman to Deutsche Bank in, I believe, 97 or 98. And at that point, even prior to landing at Deutsche Bank, Kennedy had run into Trump quite a bit. I mean, they, they were both kind of le leading these I don't want to call them playboys, but like they were, they were leading these lives of like swanning around places like Aspen. And, you know, you bump it. There's a fairly small world there. And so you kind of get to know the people, especially since they were both in the real estate world. And so, so uh, Justin Kennedy is kind of Mike Offit's deputy at Deutsche Bank. And it, in 1998, and they're really starting to try and like build a successful commercial real estate business in the U S from scratch in 1998, Trump comes knocking and, it, you know, he, Trump and Offit hit it off, but I, Trump and Kennedy already knew each other. And so it was, uh, you know, th there was immediately some traction there. And before long, about a year later, Mike Offit got fired by Deutsche Bank and Justin Kennedy ascended to basically take off its role. And that left him not in charge of the commercial real estate business, but very, uh, very high ranking person in that business where he was basically in charge of figuring out, like structuring loans in a way that could be then sliced and diced into mortgage-backed securities and then sold on to investors, which is, you know, that's basically two thirds of the process. Uh, it's not the process that involves actually like looking through Trump's financials and deciding whether or not to lend him, but he was a guy, a principal on this, who was in the room on all of these transactions. And during the period in which, so Kennedy was in that role for the next 10 years. And during that period, there was one loan after another culminating in 2005, in this enormous loan to allow Trump to build from scratch, from the ground up, this enormous complex in, on, the, uh, on the river in Chicago. And so Kennedy was, you know, he was being wined and dined by Trump. He was visiting with both Donald and Ivanka a lot because Ivanka was the person who was supposedly in charge of this Chicago project. And he became a close friend of the family during this period. And it, he left the bank in 2009 after incidentally having made a killing during the financial crisis. And it uh, went on and started and did his own work in the real estate business, kept working with the Trumps and also with the Kushners at that point. And so by the time the, pre the 2016 presidential campaign was underway, Kennedy was really, I mean, he was a very kind of tight member of the Trump and Kushner orbits. I love this quote that you have in the book, which says Kennedy sometimes sat with Trump in his luxury box at the U.S. Open tennis tournament or at a Manhattan nightclubs, where Trump would park himself at a table in the corner facing outward, holding court like a mafia don, which, you know, many suspect he was like that. But it's an unusual optics to have the son of a Supreme Court judge uh, hanging out with a mafia don. Yeah, well, not only... Well, just I want to avoid getting sued here. So yeah. just to be clear, I was not saying Trump was a mafia don. I was like a mafia but don. But the like, yeah. um, uh, look, Anthony Kennedy would often 
he would sometimes come by Deutsche Bank's offices to say hi to his son, Justin. He would say hi to Mike Offit. He was, he was not, it was not like that weird when the Supreme Court justice would show up at Deutsche Bank's offices. So he, and he, Anthony Kennedy definitely knew what his son was doing. He knew about this big relationship with Trump. And uh, so it was not, yeah, it was a little bit, none of this would have seemed strange, frankly, were it not for what happened in November of 2016, right. and this guy that they'd been doing business with all these years, like miraculously gets elected president. And at that point, it must, I mean, I don't know what was going on in the Kennedy family right as he got elected, but it, there must have been some very weird conversations. And I know there were some very weird conversations sure. in early 2017 when Trump and it put, started putting on this charm offensive to try and get Anthony Kennedy to step down from the court so that he, Trump, could have another appointment. And that was, and he put on the charm offensive and Ivanka put on the charm offensive, really trying to butter up Anthony Kennedy by appealing to the friendship that the family had with his really? son, Justin. I didn't know that at all. That's really interesting. Um, and did Justin help with that? Did Justin put some pressure on his dad? Is that the idea there? I don't, that's a good question. And I don't know, not to my knowledge. Uh, what I do know is that, and he, and, uh, you'll get to this at the end of the book, but and I don't want to give too much away for all the other people out there who might buy don't this. give it away. But, uh, uh, <laughs> look, there is, um, and Trump very famously, at I, I believe it was his first address to a joint session of Congress upon being inaugurated, gives the speech, and it, you know after the speech he goes through the crowd and is you know shaking everyone's hand, and the first row of people includes a bunch of the Supreme Court justices. And, you know, he walks down the line and shakes hands with a bunch of them. And then he gets to Anthony Kennedy and he stops. And when you see this on TV, you can't actually see what or hear what he's saying. You can just see that they're exchanging some pleasantries. And it had been kind of this, uh, once Kennedy stepped down, what, a year later, I guess, people were looking back on that exchange and wondering what on earth they were talking about. And what they were talking about was Justin Kennedy. And it, Justice Kennedy said to uh, Trump, great congratulations on the great speech. Trump replied, and I'm probably going to get a little bit of this wrong because I don't have it in front of me, but it was something to the effect of, thanks, that means a lot coming from you, and your son is just like a wonderful boy. We love him up in New York. My kids love him. You're doing a great job as a dad, and tell him, tell him I say hi. I and he said he was a good banker. <laughs> and, and Justin Kennedy was sitting at home in Florida watching this on TV, and you know, could see the president talking to his father, and he called his father later that night and said, "Dad, that was cool. You were talking to the president on TV. What did he say to you?" And Anthony Kennedy says to his son, feeling like a very proud father, he says, "The president says hi to you." Um, and that was kind of the begin. That was the opening salvo, and would, would become a weeks-long kind of charm offensive by the Trump family to really make Anthony Kennedy much more comfortable with the notion of entrusting. The, the vacancy that he might create to this president who was kind of all over the map and was very hard to read. So I, I think it was a pretty important moment. Eric. Yeah, that uh, that part of the book jumped out. Uh, I was all over the stuff at the end. As, as soon as we talk about financing, uh, you know, genocides in Iran and um, Syria and all that, but uh, got sucked into the, the, the part of the 2017 when, uh, when there's the interactions between Justice Kennedy and Trump a few weeks into his presidency where everyone's on pins and needles. How's this all going to go? And what I think is so, uh, so illuminating about your book here with all its great research is when you get all the contacts that were made between Ivanka and Justin Kennedy and, and Justice Kennedy, I just want to highlight for the audience how completely insanely inappropriate that is for the Supreme Court to be in touch with the executive branch that way through, oh, yeah. through and, and, and considering Deutsche Bank's history. It, it's, you know, and, and it's highlighted by all the rest of the, the beginning of the book where you just see how dodgy all of this is. And the sentence sticks out. E Trump was dodgy for Deutsche Bank, even given their other clients of Iran, Syria, the Burmese military. <laughs> and then, then they connect through to our, our, our they, they connect this, this dodgy mobbed up foreign owned president with our own Supreme Court through the Kennedys. And it's just smells bad. It's amazing. Smells bad. Well, look, and don't forget the Kennedys <laughs> either. It's a little right? smell. It's a little smelly. I mean, my it allergies are going you know. crazy right now, but it's I can smell it. Problematic. I can smell it. <laughs> yeah. Pretty good. Kushner's connection to all of this is fascinating to me too, because I mean, the the Kushners yeah. in a lot of ways have 
I mean, look, the guy, Charlie Kushner is a convicted felon and, um, and runs a real estate business that it's has had in the Trump administration. It's problematic, generally. It is generally problematic. And in fact, it made it the family and the companies largely off limits to the banking industry, just like the Trump organization was until, right. and they had, the Kushner companies had one of the lenders they had done a lot of business with over the years was this kind of this very, uh, let me see, ethically challenged Israeli bank called Bank Leumi. Oh, yeah. And they've uh, gotten in a lot of trouble over the yeah. years. And, no, uh, not Leumi. Yeah. So the one of the people who went on, in fact, the person who went on to be kind of the most important person at Deutsche Bank as far as the Trumps and Kushners are concerned is this woman, Rosemary Vrablic, who is oh, the yeah. private banker responsible mm -hmm. for the Mm -mm -mm -mm. Where did Rosemary Vrablic receive her training on how to do loan underwriting? Bank uh, Leumi. And, uh, uh. and so there's, um, you know, you can really trace this, the, the Kushner relationship and, and also the Trump relationship in the past, you know, 10 years through Rosemary Vrablic, where Jared and Charlie Kushner developed. This is her, by the way, because people are watching. She looks very, yeah. very nice. Must be a lot of very powerful. Got some loans she, through for these guys. You know, she's she's good at her job, honestly, and she. He said, like "Drink too." I love that industry. part. I loved all that color. Yeah, she's you know, fat. She look, look. Loose with these guys and drink at the yeah, table. Not, a deal. Yeah, she's Yeah, she's not someone who uh, you would picture in this role. She's a yeah, she's a heavy drinker. She likes going to dive bars, um, and then after going to the dive bar, she gets into her like you know, black tie event garb, whatever their gown, I guess, uh, and goes off and wines and dines with the richest, most powerful people in the world. And Kushner, Jared Kushner, shortly after marrying Ivanka in 2009 and becoming part of the Trump family, uh, there they are, uh, happy as a clam. Kushner, who regards Bradley as the best banker he's ever met, knows that Trump <laughs> is in need of money and invites Rosemary Vrablic over to Trump Tower where Kushner invites or introduces her to his new father-in-law. And that's the start of the Trump relationship in kind of starting around 2011 because he had been kicked out of the Deutsche Bank in 2008 after defaulting on another loan and then suing the bank. He gets reintroduced to the bank and kind of re-accepted into the bank through Jared Kushner and Rosemary Vrablic who uh, you know, has taken over the relationship ever since. Now, there's also a, a, a controversial, I guess, uh, thing that she's involved in. She was found to have yeah. purchased a, a property recently that she got from uh, Jared, or indirectly from Jared. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, this is something we're still trying to figure out. We just reported this about two weeks ago, I think, and it wasn't known until then. Um, so Kushner, does, Kushner, like Trump, has to do an annual financial disclosure report where he lists kind of all of his assets and sources of income. And my colleague, Jesse Drucker, has like so memorized that all of his assets that when he looked at the latest one, which was filed like late on a Friday night two weeks ago, uh, this one entity jumped out at him. And I can't remember off the top of my head what it's called, but uh, it's like some weird- Bergen something, yeah. It's like yeah, a weird name. It like, yeah, it's it's it was like Burgle 715, I think it was called, yeah. LLC. And it, uh, it turns out Burgle 715 LLC is an entity that back, uh, I believe, in 2012, 2013, sold Rosemary Vrablic and two of her Deutsche Bank colleagues, two of her subordinates at the bank. So is that weird uh, that she that she bought her apartment, and which Vrablic then Vrablic then transferred into another LLC and then sold at you know a pretty nice profit a year or two later. And uh, I want to underline that though that she she and two of her her subordinates yeah. at the bank together buy something from their client. It's clearly off the books. I mean, it's clearly not designed to be uh, a reported transaction. And this guy is is the advisor to the president of the United States and she is both of their bankers? Yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty weird. I mean, we, look, we, we called Deutsche Bank on this two weeks ago and they this was the first they had heard of it, or at least that's what they said. And they started an internal investigation into it. And we, so we don't know what that's going to find. Look, to you know, to play devil's advocate and to be, uh, just to be fair, I mean, it's yeah. possible that Vrablic didn't know that Kushner controlled or was a part owner of this Burgle 715 thing. It's possible. I mean, Kushner owns wow. about a trillion. Things. I know, I'm, but look, we don't know. And Vrablic, <laughs> I, I, I don't want to defend Vrablic, but she was doing her job, right? And her job was to make it. And this is the right. story of Deutsche Bank. 
they have they're pressured to make as much money as possible as quickly as possible consequences be damned and she is doing her job to make as many loans as she can and generate as much fee income as she can for this bank and the bank in more or less programs people from the moment they arrive there to push the envelope in any way possible and so she like others obviously she should be responsible and is responsible for her own actions but she's also a creature of this completely out of control unethical often criminal culture at the bank and so it's you know, I, I think it's may important not be her fault not, personally. Is what you're be, I want to like cancel Rosemary Vrablic here. Like, right. there's we don't know that what she was doing was improper. Well, there's a lot of. I mean, do you buy do you buy condos with your colleagues? I don't know. I, I've never done that. <laughs> I, seems, I, it seems unusual. Yeah, we'll see what that. I know. I know. Do you think like, uh, if the bank investigates her and they find some some dirty stuff there, does that become uh, helpful to the prosecutors who are looking at some of this uh, stuff? It's a really good question, and that's there's this whole kind of subtext to this, which is that Vrablic is, I mean, she knows where all the bodies are buried and then some. I mean, she and she has been concerned for a couple of years now that she, that Deutsche Bank was kind of going to throw her publicly under the bus for all the Trump and Kushner relationships, and she was so concerned about that that at one point, I think 2018, wow. she ended up printing out or photocopying a lot of the Trump and Kushner documentation she had, and she took it home and put it in her penthouse apartment. Uh, wow. So this is someone who oh, has wow. a lot of ammo that I imagine the bank would be very concerned about if she were to just be a free agent. And right. it, so I don't know. I mean, there's, to me, that was part of what was so interesting about the developments two weeks ago. It's not so much that Vrablic had engaged in like what looks like a very strange, unusual transaction with what looks like a client. It was that the bank, without a whole lot of thought, came out and publicly said, this is news to us and we are opening an internal investigation into what happened here, which is, they've been very deliberate over the past couple of years to really be circling the wagons around her publicly. And th this seemed like there was all of a sudden a good bit of distance between them. And it, I found that pretty remarkable, actually. So Deutsche Bank has also come up in a couple of other things. We know that the wow. uh, that Vance is 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 doing some publicly stating that he's got all these documents or received all these documents yeah. from Deutsche Bank. Michael Cohn was out there yesterday uh, with his new book, hinting as well that that uh, he can prove some of that tax fraud related to the president. Um, what are your thoughts about uh, where all this is going uh, through the court system and uh, basically where do you think the prosecutions are going to land? Well. The last question I really don't know. I mean, the I think where this is going to land in general, though, is that I mean, look, the uh, the district attorney has um, a bunch of stuff from Deutsche Bank regarding Donald Trump. We don't know exactly what that is, um, but we do know that the subpoena included, but I don't think it was limited to information about um, Trump's kind of loan applications and whatever materials he was providing to the bank as he sought either loans or other financial commitments and. So that could be all sorts of stuff. And it, we also know, obviously, that Vance, the DA, is and has been for a year now trying to get Trump's tax returns from Trump's accounting for Mazars. And I suspect, I mean, that they have not yet gotten those tax returns. I suspect they will. And um, I expect they will probably pretty quickly, the way these, this court case is going. Um, I don't, will that ever become public? I do not know, because it's subject to grand jury secrecy rules. And will it ever lead to a criminal indictment. I don't know that either. I mean, there's what Michael Cohen has said publicly in congressional testimony last year was that when he saw Trump applying for loans or other financial commitments from Deutsche Bank, the, the unaudited financial statements that Trump was providing included uh, asset valuations that were just completely, like, just completely exaggerated and inflated. And that that's very consistent with what I've heard from people inside Deutsche Bank who were involved in looking at these documents at the time, who said that they would, and he was just, the, the valuations were just preposterous. And they would go through and essentially mark down what he was valuing his assets at by as much as 70% per asset. So they, they he was, there was very little doubt that Trump was wildly exaggerating these asset valuations. I think what Trump will argue in his defense if it ever comes to that is that real estate assets in particular, the valuations are subjective and Deutsche Bank, you know, it didn't really take me that seriously. Uh, that, you know, having talked to lawyers about this, that 
seems like a pretty aggressive argument to make. Um, and also, look, we don't know the full extent of what Vance is investigating. I and mean, we know that it includes bank and insurance fraud, but for all we know, it could include a whole bunch of other things like money laundering and other stuff. So I don't, and Vance has been very kind of, and his lawyers have been pretty clear about that in the past couple of weeks in court filings, that there is we, no one, including Trump or the judge who's presiding over this, should be making assumptions about this being limited to an investigation into one thing or another thing. This could be much wider range. Eric, you want to read a yes. passage? Yes. I right, would, because, you know, so... Let's hear uh, you a know, passage from your book, David. We're going to have passage. story time now. Because <laughs> the story time starts on, on the cold, cold morning of November 9th, when everybody, apparently including, according to, to this book's research, uh, confirming what we all thought, which was Trump didn't think he was going to win. Nobody did. And especially Deutsche Bank didn't, especially with those ties uh, that are mentioned uh in the following passage that might be revealed by the manhattan da's office so this is in the weeks after the 2016 election executives hustled to devise a plan one immediate step was to reduce the bank's exposure to russia a decade earlier deutsche had extended a one billion dollar credit line to vtb the kremlin bank with which ackerman had forged such close ties that's of course a russian spy bank that had been sanctioned for being russian spies yep. with russia yep spy stuff uh there was nothing wrong with the two banks lending each other money bank to bank transactions were the lifeblood of the financial system but this was a large loan to banks with links to russian intelligence and deutsche executives were scared about what might happen if if it became public uh so the one another passage that kind of frames the problem now though it meant that the incoming american president was deep in hock to a foreign institution one over which his administration wielded an enormous power the loan agreements could be amended to delete those provisions and then it would be the trump organization not trump himself that owed all the money and you see all the contortions and whatnot but I, david i'm just struck by uh, all these like wonderful kind of understatements to this because this is a this book is like a you know a large box of dynamite yeah um, and it's all yeah. very understated and all very, very factual. And it's like, yeah, so they woke up and it's like, oh man, our ties to that Russian spy bank might really run into an issue with somebody becoming president of the United States. Like, Do you yeah. know, one of the things that I'm really surprised has not, look, I think understatement is better than overstatement in these days and people <laughs> can interpret what they want. And you know, it, there's- It's still an overstatement. You understate it and it's still like, holy shit. Right, because you can't make this shit up, man. Let me just yeah. tell you though that one of the things I've been really surprised has not generated more controversy is that so from 2002 to 2012, Deutsche Bank's CEO was a guy named Joe Ackerman, who was responsible yes. in large part for the rapid growth of the bank and transforming it not only into a Wall Street bank but also just this like monstrous institution that just did not give a shit about anything other than its bottom line, yes. and that was a big part of the reason for the Trump relationship. It was a big part of the reason that it got involved in Russian money laundering over the years, blah, blah, blah. Well, Ackerman steps down in 2012 from the bank, and no sooner does he step down than he finds himself in St. Petersburg, Russia, at a, huh. an economic forum organized by the Kremlin, and Vladimir oh, Putin is there and asks to have a private meeting with Ackerman, and which yeah. Ackerman happily accepts. And in the private meeting, Putin offers him a job running the Russian sovereign wealth fund. And so... If you think about that for a second, this is the bank that has not only been the bank to, to Donald Trump, but it's the bank that has been really responsible for like a lot of, it was responsible for the bankrupting or the, the financial insolvency of entire countries like in Southern Europe in the yep. mid, in the early 2010s. This is a bank that is, you know, deeply involved with the guy who's about to become president. And here we have the CEO of the bank, the guy who's kind of the architect of it in its modern form, receiving a very lucrative, very powerful job offer directly from Vladimir Putin. Wow. And look, the job didn't work out as it turned out, but Ackerman was ready to accept it. It's not so. He wanted it. Yeah. Yeah. These, the, these banks that. were inclined. Deutsche Bank and BTP. It always strikes me that you know this all happened after the end of the the, the Berlin Wall fell and then the Soviet Union collapsed and suddenly 
Deutsche Bank became a conduit for all this money to be flowing out of, of Russia, all the stolen money, $80 billion as much as that, um, through the Latvian banks and through these other banks. But that Deutsche Bank was the vehicle, ultimately, that made a lot of that money laundering possible. And it did come right after uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall. Yeah, look, Deutsche Bank has been in Russia more and longer than almost any other non-Russian bank in the world. I mean, it was in there financing railroads for the Tsar. Right. It, it has been in there with the exception of World War II, more or less continuously. I mean, even during the Cold War, when uh, you know Berlin was divided and their East and West Germany were divided, Do uh, Deutsche Bank, the German bank, was in Russia. It was the, really the only Western bank in Russia, and it, so and the way that Deutsche Bank managed to keep in good graces in Russia was that it would do what rich, powerful Russians and the Kremlin wanted. And by the mid or really early two thousands. What rich, powerful Russians wanted was someone to help them get their rubles out of Russia and into the Western financial flight system. Capital. It was all yeah. flight capital. It was like, how do we do this? And how do we get our money out? How can we put it in? And along with that came, uh, you know, Kremlin intent. You can't separate that. Uh, uh, yep. Because the directives were actually coming out of, use the word directives, the directorate itself. Um, that you know, the former KGB, head of the KGB was saying to his, uh, you know, his people, hey, find ways to go and create financial hooks into democracy, into the West. Yeah. Find we need we need big, big vehicles through which we can push um, all this money into to sort of get ourselves out there. The way that Deutsche Bank itself, as a bank, had expanded. Right. They were always looking, yep. OK, oh, let's go over here. We want to get into South America. Let's go over here. We want to get over in China. We're like, they were constantly, you know, these so uh, financial institutions that try to become global or do become global always want to get their money into other nations, into yep. the businesses there, into the markets there. So this was, this was um, stolen no. money. This was money stolen from the Russian Stolen people. money. Yeah, stolen money. Flight capital. <laughs> Support Narrative's independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative. And check out our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe and download.